Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. What you are about to hear is a webinar we recorded on Wednesday, November 1st, 2023, the second in a series we are holding on the catastrophe in Gaza. Please be sure to listen to our other programming on Gaza and go to our website for more resources, www.fmep.org. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, hello. Welcome. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is Wednesday, November 1st. Pleased to welcome people to our webinar today, Catastrophe in Gaza, What's Next? Part 2. Um, I'll talk about that in a second. I first want to do some uh, housekeeping. First of all, we are, um, the format today is what it always is, which is a Q&A between me and our guests, who I'll introduce in a moment. The Q&A box is open and you should feel free to put in questions at any time. I'm sorry, there's a siren in the background. That should go away in a second. Um, so please do that. We'll incorporate the questions in as we get them. Um, as far as the chat box, that is to be used to communicate with the people behind the scenes. So if you have any questions or problems about the webinar itself or resources, uh, check with them. We are live streaming on Facebook. Greetings, people on Facebook. Um, and there is also we have enabled the um, the chat the sorry we have enabled the closed captioning function for people who want to read to follow this discussion um, that way. I'll also note that this will be posted online as both video and as a podcast, so you can watch it again or share it, and we'll include a whole load of wonderful resources with that. Um, the resources that were probably those mentioned during this event, and then other things as well. So. Um, this is part two. We held a part one of this discussion um, on Monday, two days ago, with our partners Inez Abderazik of the Palestine Institute for Public Diplomacy and Fadi Quran of Avaz. You can see or uh, listen to that at our website, www.fmep.org. Today, we are incredibly honored to have with us two other amazing colleagues and partners. We have Amjad Iraqi of 972 Magazine and Zari Bashi of Human Rights Watch. Um, they both have much longer bios than that. You can find those bios on our website along with everything about this event. So I'm gonna do the very um, quick, I'm gonna talk fast, reminder of the background of this webinar and part one. Um, and I'm assuming most people are tuning in because they know this and they care, but just to get this on the record, in the wake of Hamas's massacres of citizens and residents of Israel on October 7th, uh, Israeli leadership has launched a massive military campaign on Gaza. It has been going on now for more than three weeks. That campaign comes into the backdrop of the context of 16 years of Israeli blockade and targeting of the population that is uh, largely made up of people who are refugees from homes inside what is now Israel, um, who became refugees of the Gaza Strip um, 75 years ago, Israel's War of Independence, the Nakba, um, which left them unable to return to their homes. And what we're seeing now in the current war is um, just almost incomprehensible levels of civilian death and injury and suffering and destruction. Um, around this campaign, Israeli officials have used language that makes clear that they are treating every human being in Gaza as a target, every building as a target. Um, they're making clear the goal is uh, infliction of damage, not precision, almost those exact words. They have used terms like human animals to describe Palestinians. And, and they've made explicit that they are not recognizing a distinction between civilians 
and 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 non-civilian targets. And this includes um, the children of Gaza, which is about half the population. So as of when I wrote this introduction, there were around 8,000 people who've been killed, nearly half of which are children. It's much more than that now. Um, in addition, in the um, I don't know, fog of war or opportunism of conflict, we are seeing an escalation in the West Bank with settlers and soldiers escalating. Um, you can call it targeting, you can call it terrorism of Palestinians. Um, in Jerusalem, there was news this week that Ben Gavir had basically launched the militias that he's been talking about since he took office um, that are going to patrol with formal approval armed in Palestinian neighborhoods of East Jerusalem. And inside uh, sovereign Israel, recognized by the world, um, it appears that Ben Gavir and his fellow travelers are actively seeking to stoke tensions and violence uh, between Jewish Israelis um, and Palestinian citizens of Israel. Um, anyone who saw the footage from Netanya over the weekend uh, with the effort at a lynching, pogrom, I don't know what you call it, at a university there, a bunch of Arab students in a dorm, um, the visuals were, were pretty um, breathtaking. And then finally, there is the danger, um, it's not just danger, it's happening, of escalation further afield, including with Lebanon, where Israel and Hezbollah are playing a rather dangerous game with Syria and most recently with rockets fired from Yemen uh, with a specter of direct conflict with Iran hanging over the entire region. And then finally, in parallel to all of that, we have growing delegitimization and repression of Palestinian voices and support for Palestinians and Palestinian rights, and even the, the act of calling for ceasefire <laughs> increasing around the globe in Israel-Palestine, but also around the globe. So with all of that, um, we're going to dig right into it. Again, you can find the bios for, for Sari and Amjad on our website. We're going to dive right in. We have a lot to cover. So Amjad, I'm going to start with you. Okay. You have written about the quote-unquote de facto arrangement between Israel and Hamas, which was shattered on October 7th. In your recent piece in the London Review of Books, which I recommend highly, um, my colleagues will put a link to that in the chat, you wrote about the political processes that led to this moment and about the Israeli government being, quote, prepared to destroy Gaza and, if possible, expel its population. So can you give us, just in a nutshell, what were the arrangements between Israel and Hamas up until October 7th, and, and what what do you think the Israeli government is intending to do now? And, and I guess what do you base that that the, that analysis on? And then I want you to to work into that um, your views on the terms um, genocide and ethnic cleansing being applied in the current context, including by me. Thanks so much, Laura. Thanks so much uh, to the FNF crew for having us first place and for all the resources you guys have been providing during this crazy period. Um, in terms of understanding this kind of uh, Israel-Hamas sort of arrangement, I mean, uh, a lot of amazing experts and scholars uh, smarter than I have written about this extensively. Uh, but one kind of useful term that we want to put forward is one by my friend and colleague, Tariq Bagrouni, who described this kind of de facto arrangement between Israel and Hamas as, a, as an equilibrium or a very violent uh, equilibrium. What does this mean? Uh, so basically after Hamas' takeover of uh, the Gaza Strip in 2007, which itself took uh, happened after uh, it was elected to government, and then international sanctions kicked in, and then a Western-backed Fatah coup tried to oust uh, Hamas from government, um, which led to that eventual takeover in Gaza. Um, from, that, from that period, Israel and Hamas kind of came to this understanding that there were going to be frequent confrontations between, between the army and Hamas, primarily through rockets and through either military incursions or, uh, or airstrikes. 
And that this violent methodology became the main sort of communication in a way when Hamas wanted to renegotiate certain lines regarding the Israeli blockade that was enforced on the Strip and for Israel vice versa. So this is how you ended up having um, this understanding between these two sides, which would end up flaring up whenever the blockade became untenable um, or that the Israeli authorities wanted to try carving out something differently in the Gaza Strip, including for domestic concerns. Um, and people like Todd Pagani have really written about this really extensively, including recently, and I would highly recommend those resources. Now, naturally, this equilibrium, you know, itself happened in an asymmetry, because in the end, the blockade itself, even in moments of quote-unquote quiet, are inherently violent to Palestinians in the Gaza Strip, who are being restricted from a lot of their basic goods, unable to move out of the Strip without uh, without permits, which are very rare to get. The horrors, are, I think, are quite well known of, of daily life in Gaza and how much worse it's gotten, especially with those military aggressions. What happened... Uh, now, basically a few weeks ago, when Hamas launched its military assault and the massacres in the southern Israeli community, is that it's shown that it is no longer interested in maintaining that equilibrium. Whether it was that the blockade was just that Hamas couldn't even govern uh, Palestinians in the besieged strip any longer, whether it thought there was an opportunity to play a different strategic card with Israel, it's still a little unclear. But it's evident for Hamas, for Hamas that this could no longer uh, go ahead, and the Israeli authorities with the massive response that they've had and the uh, debates that are now existing between the Israeli political and military echelons and within those echelons, uh, they're now trying to figure out what to replace that, that violent equilibrium with. It's going to be just as violent, if not more violent, but there's still debates. Do they want to carve out the Gaza Strip differently? Are they really going to try to you know, destroy Hamas, as the rhetoric is explaining? Are they going to go so far as to expel either part, if not all, of Gaza's 2.2, 2.3 million Palestinians. Um, all these debates are still happening. And in the meantime, the default method is to just have a full-on onslaught across the Strip. Civilians don't matter. Houses don't matter. Infrastructure doesn't matter. And unfortunately, the international community is very much tilting on Israel's side of that equilibrium to create that new one. Um, and I'm sure we'll unpack more of this. But this is really that arrangement that's definitely going to be shattered. And... On the question of about uh, about genocide and ethnic cleansing, I mean, it's on one that's quite startling because a month ago, people were still struggling to say the word apartheid to describe the regime between the river and the sea. And then suddenly, like the, like the bursting of a dam, the word genocide has come out front and center. And some might still see this as some kind of, as some kind of hyperbole, but Palestinians, even Israelis and Jewish scholars of, uh, of genocides beyond the Holocaust even just international experts who examine this and just what we're seeing on the ground shows really what genocide is, not just in terms of our historical comparisons, whether it's the Holocaust or Rwandan genocide, et cetera, but what is genocide also outside of the scope of international law, how genocide is understood as trying to destroy the essence of a community as even the original uh, kind of founder, Rafael Lemkin, even envisioned it. And that is really what we're seeing, a complete disregard for Palestinian human life a complete desire to completely um, usurp the very basic needs of, uh, of life in the Gaza Strip is practically unlivable. And even now it's unlivable. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, and now we're seeing just attempts to completely move, uh, if not one million, then the next thing will be two millions out of the Strip entirely to completely erase it and make it Palestinian free is really the ambition of many of these far right politicians. And so it's no longer hyperbole, uh, so, long, so long hyperbole, excuse me, to regard this as a genocide. The Israeli politicians 
are very explicit about their intent. We are hearing this in Israeli media and Israeli public who are just done with Gaza and want it to be gone. And so even if you don't want to call it now a genocide, the genocidal intent is very, very present. Thanks. That's that's a great uh, foundation for this conversation. Um, sorry, I want to turn to you. Okay, so so people hear about, know about a lot of things that Amjad's been talking about and, and we've been seeing in the media about the the tactics of Israel in this current um this current war, which have included um cutting off food, water, fuel, electricity, and most recently telecommunications um on Gaza. So 2.3 million people um facing those sort of those sort of tactics. On this topic, you recently wrote in the New York Review of Books, and again, we'll put a link in the chat, you wrote, quote, international humanitarian law requires Israel as the occupying power in Gaza to take affirmative steps to ensure the welfare of civilians. In previous hostilities, brutal as they were, the Israeli government at least partially acknowledged these obligations. In each of its four wars in Gaza since 2008, it maintained the flow of drinking water and electricity to Gaza, recognizing that civilians in the Strip depended on the grids and water pipes laid between Gaza and Israel and found ways to open the Israeli crossings for humanitarian delivery. So I want you to dig into that more. I want you to talk about what it means to deprive 2.2, million people in Gaza of these basic needs. I also would love it if you talk a little bit about why you, why God, why Israel is still considered an occupying power in Gaza, which comes up in almost every conversation where anyone mentions this. They say, well, it's not occupied anymore. Um, and then can you also talk about why you think Israel has adopted these different tactics this time and, and what that suggests Israel is trying to achieve? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so maybe it's helpful to just talk a little bit about what Gaza is. Um, so Gaza is part of a mandatory Palestine or the biblical land of Israel. And in 1948, when the uh, Nakba or War of Independence broke out, it was occupied by Egypt and carved out as a strip that was occupied by Egypt until 1967, when the Israeli military captured it and other areas. Since then, um, it's been dependent on Israel for most of its trade and supply. So over the years, um, the Israeli government built uh, walls and fences surrounding Gaza entirely, as did the Egyptians. And the sea, uh, the coast, is bounded, border patrolled by Israeli uh, naval ships. And the territory, the airspace is, um, uh, as everyone knows, <laughs> controlled by the Israeli Air Force. So um, Israel controls the crossings through which goods flow. Prior to October 7th, there were some trucks coming in via the Egyptian crossing uh, with Gaza. Most of the trucks coming in and the trucks most of the trucks coming out as well were through the one commercial crossing that Israel left open with Gaza in the south, uh, Kerem Shalom or Kerem Abu Salam. And um, through the combination of the Egyptian and Israeli crossings, about 500 trucks were entering Gaza every day. And more recently, there had been a very limited ability of people in Gaza to also send truckloads out. Um, of some uh, agricultural products and textiles, mostly for sale in Israel and the West Bank. Um, 
what happened on October 7th is that the Israeli military closed um, all the crossings, um, especially Kirim Shalom. It also uh, cut off the water and electricity supply. So the water and electricity flow on infrastructure that was built through decades of occupation, uh, the Palestinian Authority pays for it. It purchases it from Israel and people pay their utility bills to fund that. Um, and most of the clean drinking water comes from Israel. So there are water sources in Gaza, uh, in the coastal aquifer, but it's brackish, it's salty. So um, it, people get their clean drinking water from Israel and that was cut off. Um, in addition, um, because the Israeli military cut off all uh, truckloads coming in, there was no fuel coming in um, because hospitals, um, water, the, the water system, uh, ambulances, delivery trucks rely on fuel that comes in through pipes um, via Karim Shalom, via the Israeli border. And because the electricity was cut, people really needed that fuel for generators. Um, so that has um, been running out. Um, the water system is not functioning very well. Um, people are, are drinking uh, brackish water from agricultural wells, which is unfit for human consumption. Most of the desalination plants have shut down for lack of fuel. Um, and while Israel has partially supplied uh, water uh, in the South, it's difficult to pump it because there's no fuel to pump it out and they have not supplied water in the north at all. Um, since October 7th, um, about 200 truckloads in total have entered at Gaza for relief supplies. That's in contrast to the minimum 100 truckloads per day that aid, aid agencies say is the absolute minimum for people in Gaza to survive. Those truckloads have mostly gone to the south. There's no ability to bring it up to the north. And the Israeli military has actually been quite clear about that, that they're not uh, allowing humanitarian aid to enter in the north. In addition, quite early on, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu um, made a statement that no humanitarian aid would enter Gaza from Israel. So that's quite an inversion of what uh, Israel's responsibilities are. Um, the United Nations, the international community believe that Israel is still an occupying power in Gaza because it continues to control the perimeter, to control the tax system, to control all the crossings with the West Bank and to control the population registry who is considered a resident of Gaza for purposes of being able to travel. Under international law, an occupying power has to affirmatively ensure that the civilian population is adequately supplied, in this case with life-saving humanitarian aid. In addition, irrespective of the question of occupation, Israel as a warring party has an obligation to facilitate the rapid and unimpeded passage of humanitarian relief, um, only subject to inspection and monitoring. So after a while, the Israeli government allowed Egypt to open its crossing for uh, a, a relatively small number of trucks, but the Israeli government is not letting fuel um, be part of those trucks. So that means they're wasting a lot of space bringing in bottled water because they don't have the fuel to run the desalination plants or to pump the water. And it means that very little is coming in. Um, so in terms of fuel, the Israeli government can inspect trucks going in um, to ensure there's no weapons. They can take steps to monitor to ensure there's no diversion by armed groups. What they cannot do is um, deprive civilians in Gaza of life-saving aid. And fuel right now in Gaza is life-saving. It's needed to power the incubators in the neonatal intensive care units. It's needed to deliver uh, aid. It's needed to pump the water and sewage. And um, impe deliberately impeding 
the supply of humanitarian relief is a war crime, as is collective punishment. Um, and the collective punishment is um, because the Israeli military is punishing 2.2 civilians in Gaza, 2.2 people in Gaza, for the actions of fighters. Gaza is about the size of the US city of Philadelphia. Nearly half the population are children. So imagine what would happen if you built walls around the entire city of Philadelphia and then let in about 20 trucks a day. People wouldn't do very well and they're not doing very well in Gaza. Thanks, thanks for that. Um, I mean, again, this is all very good, um, I think framing. And I don't know, maybe, I want to ask you, I, I have a different question, but maybe at some point you can work in a little bit. Um, sorry, I was previously the, the founder and, and worked with Gisha, which works with getting um, with Gaza and, and talking about how what the status quo ante was like and the issue of um, limiting entry of goods already to just the barest survival rate. Um, maybe if you want to work that in. But the, the next question I want to ask you, and I'm asking you really as a legal expert here, um, I mean, because a lot of this really comes down to we're all debating what Israel is and isn't allowed to do. You've written and you've spoken about how in its war on Gaza is Israel is, and I'm quoting you, distorting the laws of war. And I want you to unpack that for us, for those of us who are not lawyers or those of us who are not experts on this. What laws of war are you talking about and how is Israel distorting them? And 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 given what what given what the international community so far seems to be content to let Israel do, what what does this mean for international law, for those laws of war and their standing in general? Yeah, thank you for that. Um, so I think that maybe the worst and, and deadliest distortion of international law has to do with the way that the Israeli military is um, understanding or deliberately misunderstanding protections for civilians. So International humanitarian law, IHL, or the laws of war, require warring parties to take um, measures to protect civilians. Um, it, it prohibits indiscriminate, disproportionate, or deliberate attacks on civilians. And those obligations are non-reciprocal. So it doesn't matter if the other side is behaving properly, you have to behave properly because this is a deal that people make with humanity. It's not a deal between fighters. So Hamas and Islamic Jihad committed war crimes, unspeakable war crimes against Israeli civilians on October 7th, when they deliberately massacred hundreds of people, when they took hostages. Those were unspeakable war crimes. Nothing can justify them and nothing can justify the Israeli government committing war crimes against Palestinians because those are non-reciprocal obligations. In particular, the Israeli military is taking provisions of international humanitarian law that are intended to protect civilians and weaponizing them to harm civilians. So um, earlier this month, the Israeli government issued an evacuation order for Northern Gaza, telling more than a million people to flee south. So international law, international humanitarian law, encourages warring parties to issue warnings to civilians where such warnings allow civilians to protect themselves from an impending attack. But when you warn people to leave and there's no safe place to go, and no safe way to get there, it's not an effective warning. And irrespective of what the warning is and what impossible choices people make, civilians who stay behind in the so-called evacuation zone, either because they cannot or will not leave, retain their civilian protections. In Northern Gaza is Shifa Hospital, the main hospital in Gaza that is struggling to treat some of the more than 20,000 people 
who have been injured in the latest violence, in addition to doing everything else. Um, those doctors, those ICU patients, those children in, in, in incubators in the neonatal intensive care unit cannot leave. People with disabilities, we just published a piece today about how this affects them in Gaza. Older people cannot leave. And some of the people who have chosen to leave and gone to the South have come back because conditions in the South are quite dire. There's, there's no safe place to be. People have been killed fleeing on the evacuation routes that the Israeli military designated, and they've been killed once they were in southern Gaza. After, after people um, remain behind, and there's an estimated at least 300,000 people in northern Gaza, they still cannot be targeted. But the Israeli military has dropped leaflets on Gaza City, warning people that if they stay behind, they risk being considered complicit in terrorist activity. And the repeated warnings that people should go south, that uh, there's humanitarian aid in the south, which there is not sufficient of, um, and even admonishing international organizations for providing assistance to internally displace people in northern Gaza, saying it's encouraging them to stay. That is all a distortion of what international law says. An evacuation order cannot be used as a, a green light to harm people who stay behind. And under the current circumstances in which the Israeli government has also called on civilians to flee to Egypt, and some of those civilians remember fleeing homes 75 years ago that they were not allowed to return to, the evacuation order risks being forcible displacement, which is unlawful. So before I, I'm going to come back to you in a second, are, are you, is, can you address the the use of white phosphorus just I mean that's come up a lot just in terms of an actual weapon that is banned it's banned in I mean I, I've had people come back to me and say well it's not banned in all uses so it's anti-semitic to suggest that this is a problem can you talk about that well I don't think it's anti-semitic to suggest that unlawful uses of incendiary materials in Gaza are a problem but um, white phosphorus is a material that can be used for marking it can be used um, for obfuscation and it can be used as a weapon to harm people Human Rights Watch has documented Israeli uh, forces using white phosphorus in populated areas both in Gaza and in Lebanon and Amnesty International I think yesterday or today put out another piece documenting additional uses of white phosphorus it, it's an incendiary material and its use in uh, civilian areas um, violates the prohibition against unnecessarily causing harm to civilians. It, it's incendiary, it burns human flesh, and that's why it is not allowed to be used in populated areas. It's not the first time Human Rights Watch has documented the use of white phosphorus in populated areas. This was actually the subject of a court petition uh, in the Israeli Supreme Court years ago when the Israeli military committed to not using it except in certain circumstances. And those circumstances are uh, privileged. Um, they weren't open to the public. So we don't know what they are, but it's very worrying that it's being used in Gaza and Lebanon right now. Thank you. All right, Amjad, coming back to you. Um, so there are excellent, I would say, heroic Palestinian human rights groups. I'm thinking about Haq, um, uh, PCHR, Al-Mezan, others, um, that advocate now for international intervention for the sake of Palestinian safety and accountability um, for what Israel's doing. I want you to talk about what Palestinians are saying to the international community now. Um, what what do they want from the international community after, after more than three weeks of the Israeli of the Israeli military actions in Gaza and the damage and killing we've seen? Um, 
do you think anything is shifting in terms of what Palestinians are are asking or expecting or hoping um, with respect to international intervention? Yeah, I apologize to switch my computer just for a technical uh, issue. Um, it's um, it's been quite astounding just to see how much the bare minimum that Palestinians are asking for in this moment is being deemed impossible. Uh, and this really specifically to the call for a ceasefire. Uh, usually in any kind of heightened sort of military confrontations, it seems to be the most default thing that one should ask for. So Palestinian organizations, you know, even as they're focusing on you know, the political context and the structural issues and keeping in mind that there, there's much deeper issues that need to be addressed uh, during and after all this, the minimum is to stop the guns from, the, the guns and bombs from, from going off as they are. Um, what we're seeing is that the international community and specifically the United States and most European countries are basically indulging Israel in this campaign of revenge. And they're saying, no, we're going to keep the meter running and the meter being Palestinian casualties, uh, primarily civilians, you know, with the occasional Hamas militants, you know, uh, kind of interspersed among the, the among the death rates. Keep re- keep rolling that meter onwards, and maybe down the line we'll then say that that's enough. Um, and it's it's astounding to hear, especially the White House, say that almost explicitly that actually ceasefires is harmful, um, which is just quite astonishing. And so for Palestinian organizations and anyone else just trying to even kind of bring some reason to this entire conversation, I think it's quite astounding that even that is no longer being enabled. And when people were also just demanding humanitarian aid uh, for people in Gaza, that that was actually also deemed like, exactly was like just 20 trucks. Like what is 20 trucks? Can't even provide for a couple of households. Um, and so for a lot of Palestinians really watching this, you know, they're there's a lot of rage, a lot of rage at just the overt complicity in what they see as a genocidal campaign, uh, overt complicity in allowing Israel to forcibly evacuate one million people. Um, Complicity in this narrative uh, that uh, the massacres that happened in the South uh, a few weeks ago justifies this absolutely disproportionate response. And we're seeing in the media, we're still using these same talking points. And so at the same time, there's this paralyzing fear of what we're witnessing. Uh, there's this rage that's uh, that uh, the international community is not even pretending to look out for our lives, not even pretending to try to calm the situation. Um, so this is quite alarming. Um, and this is exactly why when we're talking about genocidal intent, it's that um, for Palestinians, if you're like, if they're allowing the Israeli army to do this in Gaza, what else will they allow them to do? We're witnessing here in the West Bank, I mean, excuse me, like in the West Bank, uh, Israeli settler and army violence going full speed ahead to uh, completely erase entire communities who are now being forced to flee because of this escalated violence with scores of Palestinians killed. I think the number is now 18, maybe something like that, uh, just in the past like three, four weeks. Um, And even inside Israel, whereby Palestinian citizens, you know, know, we're kind of experiencing this massive... um, uh, almost like totalitarian shift by Israeli state and society, and that we're seeing now that if they're allowing God, if allowing people in Gaza to be so easily moved by the Israeli military, you know, are Palestinian citizens next? Because in the Israeli discourse, the idea of forcible transfer has been, you know, just promoted more and more over the years, especially with this far-right government and other far-right forces. So this is really 
very terrifying thing to be grappling with. And I think a lot of Palestinians are trying to navigate this moment. I think they're taking a lot of solace, at least, in massive shows of solidarity and demonstrations and just the massive disconnect that we're seeing of the protests that are happening on the streets of London, of New York, of DC, of Paris, like in defiance uh, and across the Arab world as well, like in defiance of their governments, which are very much aligning themselves with the government. Um, and it's really showing that disconnect between the political leaders and the publics, which are seeing what's going on. Um, but it's been quite alarming. And I think how we think, how we try to approach that and how we try to change that scenario, I think it's, it's a very, uh, it's a very disillusioning moment for a lot of Palestinians. Um, so. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Um, all right. Sorry, I'm going to come back to you. And I want to, I want to talk a little bit more about aid. Um, you've described the quote unquote blocked relief into Gaza. Um, you're saying that Israel is continuing to block desperately needed aid. You've talked about the issue of the crossings. I want you to get a little bit more into what what this means in terms of policy. And I actually would really like if you'd go back a little bit in time and talk about the blockade and what it's meant in terms of goods getting in and Gisha's role in terms of pulling pulling back the curtain a little bit on what, what that analysis is. And I'd, I'd also like you to talk, and we've hinted around this a little bit, of the role of Egypt and, and what it means, this effort of Israel's to basically push responsibility whether it's for bringing humanitarian aid in or for getting people out. There was an announcement last night that that Egypt had agreed to open Rafah for um, medical cases. And there's been some, I think, uh, controversy in the media when people realized, um, partly because I pointed it out, that the supplemental aid for Israel package of the Biden administration explicitly talks about aid for Palestinians outside of Gaza, specifically in Egypt or in the region. So can you talk about those those broader broader currents? Sure. And I, I mean, I can also frame the 16-year uh, closure of Gaza within the framework of the, uh, of the apartheid um, framework, which uh, Amjad mentioned at the outset. So um, Human Rights Watch and many other human rights organizations have followed the lead of Palestinian scholars, activists, and human rights defenders who have concluded that the Israeli government is committing the crime against the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. In essence, these are crimes in which um, the Israeli government is um, seeking to maintain the domination of Israeli Jews over Palestinians in a context of systematic oppression and through the commission of inhumane acts. So what that looks like um, depends on um, which part of Palestine we're talking about. In the West Bank, a lot of it is about forcible transfer. We can talk more about that. In Gaza, it has been through imposing a punishing closure on the Gaza Strip um, that was tightened uh, since 2007. In 2007, the Hamas faction took over the Palestinian governmental functions inside Gaza after factional fighting. And at that point, the Israeli government uh, imposed what it called a policy of economic warfare. So deliberately restricted the movement of people and goods into and out of Gaza in order to cripple the economy and it said weaken Hamas. Um, Gisha, the organization that I co-founded and uh, that I now am a member of the board of, and others concluded this is collective punishment because the Israeli military is essentially saying, was essentially saying, we will allow um, humanitarian aid to come into Gaza, but we will not allow the economy to function. We won't allow goods to come out. We won't allow people to travel for work or school. And it was quite effective. Um, the GDP, the gross domestic product per capita, a sign of a, a place's um, productivity, 
in Gaza um, is lower per capita than it was in 1994. So in 30 years, Gaza's productivity went down rather than go up, in part because of these restrictions that didn't let farmers get their good to market, um, business people to expand, and um, at many points even um, restricted the ability to get raw materials or other basic goods in. That meant that even prior to the current escalation, people, 80% of people in Gaza were dependent on humanitarian aid. So this was a very vulnerable population. When you add to that the deliberate restriction of life-saving supplies like fuel and electricity, it, it doesn't take that much to push people over the edge. So bakeries have shut down because they can't get fuel. The ones that are open have long lines that people are waiting in, um, which exposes them to the dangers of Israeli airstrikes. Um, there was something unprecedented a few days ago where thousands of people broke into an UNRWA warehouse and stole food and hygiene products because they were hungry. Parents are unable to feed their children enough. And there are reports of children um, suffering from dehydration, diarrhea, and waterborne diseases, um, both because of the lack of good uh, drinking water, as well as the inability to maintain basic sanitation. Um, 1.4 million people, more than half the population, are displaced. They're sheltering in overcrowded um, schools, overcrowded installations. There, there's no ability to properly dispose of sewage. This is something that was done to Gaza by squeezing it um, of the aid that, it, that people need to survive. And you know, hospitals are rationing fuel. So on the one hand, they're dealing with um, more than 20,000 injuries. On the other hand, they, they have to ration fuel for generators. They have to perform operations in the dark and make really hard decisions about who gets the ventilator. Um, this, this could stop tomorrow. It could stop tomorrow if the US government, which is backing uh, the Israeli government, made it clear that the Israeli government has an obligation to allow in the full panoply of humanitarian aid needed to save lives in Gaza, including fuel. Well, I, just, I just want to add to that. You say it could stop tomorrow. You're talking about the immediate humanitarian catastrophe that is coming down on people's heads right now. I think it's worth reminding people that the last statistic I saw said that Israel has damaged or, or or profoundly damaged or destroyed one in 10 houses, one in 10 homes in the Gaza Strip, um, and particularly in the north of the Gaza Strip, at the point when there is a ceasefire, which by God is the bare minimum you'd think people would be calling for, there's nothing left for most people who are, are internally displaced to go back to. So this really is is a beginning step. Um, it is not an end unto itself. So I think that's, that's really important to remind people. Um, I'm just picking up on what Sari was saying and, and going back to some of the, the sort of political framing of this question. I want you to talk about how Palestinians understand or what they've come to conclude is the Israeli policy behind these actions. These are not merely tactics. There's got I think in the sense there's a strategy. Do they assume there's a strategy behind that? What is it? And I want to talk specifically, and sorry, um, sort of not give a nod to this, this idea of what is the concern with respect to Egypt's role, both in terms of people wanting Egypt to open the border and be more engaged, and also the fears of what that that might um, lead to or or the what, what we know about Israel's goals in that respect. So like I was saying earlier, for the moment, the strategy is revenge until the Israeli authorities can decide what they want to do next. And like I said, I think there's still a lot of 
debates uh, within the establishment about how to do that. Um, with that said, I I don't think it's an overstatement to say that for Israeli politicians and Israeli generals um, and Israeli public at large, I think they do see this moment as a historic opportunity to really remake the Gaza Strip. And they, I think they want to see how far they can go with that. Now, you know, I'm putting it lightly, remake the Gaza Strip, but that, that naturally means or naturally entails uh, you know, thousands of lives, massive parts, massive parts of the strips completely devastated. Um, and if they're, you know, if all the stars align in the eyes of the Israeli authorities, then yes, the goal is, uh, is as much as possible total expulsion. Uh, even if they manage to swallow up half of the strip or parts of the strip, for them, that's already a success. Um, and kind of linking up with Egypt, you know, the Israeli authorities and also the United States are just trying to kind of shift the burden of the Palestinian civilians uh, onto onto Egypt. Uh, the defense minister, Yoav Gallant, also kind of basically said that one of the of the goals that they can articulate uh, on the Israeli side, one of them is to completely remove, in, in his words, like uh, Israel's response, Israel's like any responsibility left for Palestinian civilians, which they've been evading. Anyway, sorry, uh, described exactly. Um, and Egypt for now is pushing back against that uh, the, that idea. There've been a lot of rumors and diplomatic talks that maybe the US is trying to maybe buy out Cairo to basically allow in uh, refugees as if it's somehow easier to uh, move a million, two million Palestinians uh, away from their homes and provide them, you know, quote unquote, safety in refugee camps, rather than asking Israel for a ceasefire. As if this, as if the latter is harder to do than uh, than the former, which is just completely absurd. Um, and right now, uh, the president Sisi has come out publicly, at least, saying that he does not approve that plan. Uh, not only in terms of that fact that it, a solution needs to be found in the Gaza Strip for the Palestinians there, but also out of kind of national self interest, where Sisi said that. That he's not interested in having the Sinai become either a base for refugee camps or also a base for Palestinian militant activities. Uh, it also has its own strategic interests. And the uh, CC basically said that this scenario would basically jeopardize Egypt's uh, relations and, and treaty with Israel. So this is the public line, and one can see maybe why strategic interests for now are, are keeping Egypt uh, away from kind of uh, acquiescing fully to this. But I think, but, and here Palestinians also caught between a rock and a hard place because the desperation uh, uh, is pushing a lot of Palestinians to say like, give us that humanitarian corridor, give us this humanitarian space just to get away from the bombing. If you're not stopping the bombing, give us a safe space, even if it means on the other side of the Sinai. But Palestinians also know that if that happens, and if they cross that, if they cross to the other side of the border, in all likelihood, they will not be coming back. You know, as you were mentioning, Laura, like most of these Palestinians uh, are refugees or descendants of refugees who still remember being expelled uh, in the 1948 war, and they know how that turned out. They can see the lands which they came from, and they're not allowed to return. So the idea that the Israelis will watch whatever number of Palestinians uh, you know get out of the strip, and that the Israelis are going to allow them to come back in, I think is most Palestinians know it's not is not going to be the case, um, and just even affirm like uh, just uh, uh, a few days ago we had uh, nine seven two magazine our Hebrew partner site local call actually revealed the full text of a policy proposal by Israel's intelligence ministry, which is a small ministry and a small small portfolio in the government, uh, but basically strongly recommended, almost unequivocally recommending 
that Israel push out all the Palestinians into Egypt and to do whatever needs to be done in order to make that happen, including Egypt's consent and the United States' uh, ability to facilitate that. Um, so it's just a reflection of a, a very dominant attitude or subconsciously or unconsciously, the, uh, the attitude, and how it's beginning to really insert itself into policy discussions discussions, and not just a sort of rhetorical dreams. Uh, so this is very, very alarming. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Ministry of Intelligence report. I think it's important for people who are trying to understand how Palestinians see this to realize, or at least to understand that it is not merely a, a sense of Palestinians attributing, you know, assuming the intent. Um, we've been hearing since the beginning of this war statements from Israeli military and government officials talking about, you know, Gaza will be smaller. Um, there's one official who said at the end of this, there will be no buildings in Gaza, only tents. Um, we saw the Ministry of Intelligence report. There was also a report prior to that from a, a major right-wing Israeli think tank that has people in it very close to Netanyahu, which described the war, it described October 7th, I believe, as the unique opportunity for Israel um, to finally rid itself of the Palestinians in Gaza. Um, and I would point out there was a, an editorial in the Telegraph a couple of days ago, the gist of which was Palestinians just need to get over it. They're not, they need to, they need to get over that they're not going to have a homeland in anywhere between the river and the sea. And that's happened to lots of people before. And the sooner they get over it and move on, the sooner everybody will be happy. Um, so it's a very normalized um, framing from, from some in Israel and the Israeli officialdom and also in the international community that, that the ethnic cleansing of Palestinians from Gaza and potentially as we're seeing it right now in the West Bank is, is not only possible, but it's actually being seriously considered and, and and in some cases approvingly. Okay, we're gonna, in the next round, I wanna ask you guys some, I'm really, I wanna get to some stuff that's maybe um, more on people's minds as well, which is, um, I talk about Hamas and related to Hamas. So I'm, I'm gonna start with you. You recently um, sat for an interview with uh, someone at the New Yorker, um, and we're gonna link that interview in the chat. And you spoke extensively about Palestinian politics and specifically about Hamas's role within these politics. And you told, you told the interviewer, I'm going to quote you, you said, Hamas is again just one stream of Palestinian thoughts and politics. There are other streams that go beyond that. And Palestinian citizens especially have tried to create these different understandings of what the future can look like. I think a lot of people will critique Hamas's model for the future. So will you take a step back and talk to us about how you understand Hamas's role in the Palestinian struggle before October 7th, and then fast forward to what it is today after October 7th. Here again, I would also uh, recommend uh, you know, uh, colleagues like Talk Bakarun, who wrote a fantastic book about this with a very nuanced kind of um, accounting of Hamas's history and its development and I'm trying to understand its uh, its place in the Palestinian movement. Um, I mean, for uh, I get the sense that a lot of people abroad are always kind of quite uh, understanding of the diversity in Israeli politics, and yet they don't understand the diversity in Palestinian politics and the way that it is, has evolved. Uh, over the years, from you know, from the kind of immediate post-Nakba era to the way the PLO um, kind of uh, asserted itself in the '60s, uh, all the way up to the '80s, whereby you know when Hamas came about, it was coming around at a time that the PLO was really um, kind of abandoning a lot of its old ways. It had been really chased and decimated, especially after the Lebanon invasion and the siege of Beirut, and the leadership was expelled. Um, 
and um, and especially in the occupied territories where there was no sense of a political leadership that was emerging. And so Hamas kind of initially started off um, basically as kind of elements and offshoots uh, in ways of the Muslim Brotherhood, but has but has always defined itself very much as a Palestinian national uh, uh, national movement uh, uh, that focuses on uh, like p- political Islam and religion and its place in. Uh, in, in politics and in the public sphere, but that still centered itself around, uh, around that national uh, ideology and that national assertion of trying to liberate Palestine. And so in, in the same way that Palestinian politics is not a monolith, Hamas itself has not just been monolithic in its uh, evolution. Uh, people mo- mostly associate with its military arm, the uh, Qassam brigades, uh, but, and they note notoriously for the suicide bombings, especially the 90s and Second Tifada and the rockets uh, after the blockade. But Hamas is also a political movement. It has a political bureau. It has quite a diverse um, uh, kind of system and channels of communication and debate even within that movement. And of course, has uh, popular outreach in uh, in Palestinian society. Um, and at the moment, you know, polls are showing it's like it's kind of no more or less than the Fatah party, which dominates the PLO and led by Mahmoud Abbas, um, and it kind of fluctuates here and there. Um, but that needs to be kind of seen in this wider mapping um, of, of these different ideas and how even it, though it is a religious movement, there are those who are not necessarily don't necessarily buy into religious the Hamas's religious ideology, but still see it as a resistance movement, and especially as one that challenges uh, an authoritarian uh, Palestinian authority, and one that's still incurring a price on the occupation, differently from uh, the Fatah led PA, um, and, and and so on and so forth. So there's a it, it operates in a very complex environment, uh, though there's no doubt that Hamas and Fatah are still the kind of two main organized political groupings uh, within that. Uh, that said, the experience of Hamas. And the way that people are kind of describing this as a war on Hamas or that this, the problem is Hamas. First of all, Palestinians have been dispossessed and killed and uh, denied their rights and dehumanized long before Hamas came about in the late 80s. Uh, and, so, and Palestinians even now are experiencing the extent to which, regardless of your political um, kind of leanings or manifestation, you're still going to get the same authority. You're still going to get the same response from the Israelis and from the international community. So, for example, Fatah uh, and the PA has mostly kind of focused its, you know, quote-unquote struggle on diplomatic diplomatic battles at the UN or the ICC, etc. And it's playing the game through the Oslo Accords, basically. Uh, so acquiescence uh, in that respect has achieved the same, you know, same occupation that you've been seeing for decades. Uh, Hamas has been uh, using violent, more violent confrontations, you know, whether it was bombings to the rocket attacks, and you're seeing the same kind of occupation and blockade and closure and siege being implemented. Uh, you can even go out of uh, your organized politics and go to things like the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, which is, you know, put forward this nonviolent uh, effort to bring about the rights of Palestinians and to use it as a tool and just as an just as another type of politics. All of these are deemed terrorism. All of them are being criminalized. All of them are regarded as unacceptable. Um, Meanwhile, the Israeli state and its vision and its entrenchment of occupation um, and its uh, constant rhetoric about basically erasing Palestinians and not even legitimizing Palestinians in in any shape or form, that is all normal. That is more legitimate somehow than this diversity in Palestinian politics and all these uh, variances. So this is why, I mean, again, for those who'd like to research Hamas, there's really a lot of material uh, to go into. But the important takeaway that I, that I think really needs to be emphasized in this is that even if Hamas didn't use the rockets, and even if Hamas didn't launch the massacres that it did, 
that in the end, the system in which they're operating under, the Israeli response and intolerance of Palestinians even speaking up or acting for themselves, whether you think it's morally right or not, uh, the responses are the same. And the desire is the same to completely repress and oppress Palestinians, and if possible, to remove them from the land in order for Israel to maintain its identity as a Jewish state that looks out for Jewish settlement and the superiority of Jews between the river and the sea. And this is the biggest, uh, most important lesson to speak. Thank you. That's that's great. And so, sorry, I'm going to come to you. Sorry has to leave us at the end, at the top of the hour, which is a firm stop. Amjad, I'm going to ask you probably to stay, and we have a couple other questions we're going to try to get to. Sorry, I want to come back to you and ask you, about international and accountability, and you, you've talked about war crimes, you've talked about Hamas's war crimes. I want you to talk about what you, you, you think could or should happen to perpetrators of the war crimes that were committed on October 7th. That's first. And then second, I want you to talk about Israel and, and the Israeli current logic, which absolves itself of all responsibility, all agency for people, for Palestinians that are killed in Israel, effectively based on a doctrine that says we're committing we're, we're, we're acting in self-defense. The the other guy started it and the other guy is hiding behind human shields. And therefore, anybody that we kill in our right to self-defense, it's their fault, not ours. So there's no limits on what we can do. So I want you to talk about that that doctrine of war and how that holds up against international law and, and what its implications are. Yeah, thank you. And maybe I'll just take a minute and also answer the question that I forgot to ask about Egypt um, and Egypt not opening its borders for people fleeing. So, I, I mean, I, I share Amjad's concern about forcible displacement um, and uh, and his concern about the Israeli government's intentions. What I would say is that the choice whether or not to flee is supposed to be an individual choice. So if a family decides that they want to flee to keep themselves safe, neighboring countries, Israel and Egypt, have obligations to open up their borders and let people keep themselves safe. And that's obviously not happening. Um, in terms of accountability, you know, the one kind of bright spot is that um, after, you know, a very long time of um, very little visible action, the prosecutor of the International Criminal Court went to Rafah Crossing uh, and issued a statement. Um, we had asked, we and others had asked him to issue what's called a preemptive statement, a preventative statement, warning parties not to commit further serious international crimes, and he did so. Um, there has been an investigation into uh, serious international crimes committed in Palestine for the last two years. It has um, not yielded any visible results, and we hope that that will change. Um, and I'll just remind everybody that um, when uh, when Russia invaded Ukraine, we had uh, arrest warrants within a few months, um, and those victims were white Christians. Um, and now we have victims who are both Israeli Jews as well as Palestinian Muslims and Christians, and we haven't seen arrest warrants, and we need to. Beyond that, the Israeli government um, has called uh, for universal jurisdiction. Um, they've actually called for uh, a number of states to prosecute those responsible for the war crimes of October 7th, um, primarily from Hamas and Islamic Jihad, and we would agree with that. Um, we, we would like to see prosecutions of the International Criminal Court. We would also like to see states use their universal jurisdiction um, procedures to punish those who to prosecute, I should say, and maybe punish those um, who are accused of being responsible, um, both for the massacre and hostage taking of Israeli civilians, as well as the collective punishment and willful impeding of relief supplies um, on the Israeli side. And then, you know, for, for years, we've called for accountability for the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. 
The Israeli government is um, arguing that because it says Hamas is using civilians as human shields, it no longer has responsibility for those civilians. Um, and so if Hamas is hiding its fighters in mosques or schools, then it's too bad for those mosques and schools. So um, Human Rights Watch has in the past documented violations of international humanitarian law by Hamas and other armed groups who have failed to take measures to protect civilians. International law requires warring parties to the extent possible to avoid locating military objects, uh, personnel, uh, weapons um, in civilian areas to protect civilians, and as much as possible to warn civilians and let them leave. We've documented um, failures of Hamas and Islamic Jihad to take those precautions in previous uh, previous um, escalations. And of course, um, we, we see now that those fighters are firing uh, rockets indiscriminately at Israeli communities, which is a war crime. Those violations do not absolve the Israeli military of its obligations towards civilians. So if um, fighters are um, taking advantage of civilian areas, um, and I'm, I'm not saying they are, we haven't, had a, we haven't been able to do the, the research right now, that those people in those civilian areas are still civilians. So you still have to protect them. You still have to um, do a proportionality inquiry. You still have to make sure that you are abiding by your obligations. Um, these are obligations that all the nations of the world have signed up for because they're the basic rules of humanity. You don't deliberately harm children. And a particular concern I have of the way the Israeli military is conducting its hostilities is its massive use of explosive weapons in densely populated areas uh, in ways that are predicted to cause civilian casualties. So um, the United States and Palestine um, have signed a political declaration that reflects a, a new uh, and widely accepted norm against dropping missiles in densely packed city blocks because doing so is predicted to kill civilians and it's killing civilians. Near, more than 3000 children have been killed in Gaza in the last three weeks alone. And those numbers go up every day. Uh, Israel has been killing more than 130 children every day in Gaza. That's predictable because if you drop huge bombs in residential neighborhoods, you will kill children. And that norm is something that we would like to see the United States uphold. Um, in its dealings with Israel, in its backings of Israel. Um, those kinds of attacks risk being unlawful, indiscriminate attacks. Thank you. In the last two minutes, I'm going to stay with you, Sorry, Is there anything you want to talk about? I, I wanted to ask you about Human Rights Watch and, and how you monitor in the current circumstances and why you believe it's important to continue to monitor and document. Do you want to, do you, in, in two minutes, <laughs> what do you want to say about that? Yeah, a, a lot of our um, documentation of conflicts comes afterward. Um, and in previous conflicts, we've been able to do the documentation afterward because it's not safe to move around right now uh, in Gaza. But we have a digital investigations lab um, that combined with telephone interviews and um, other methods allows us to use uh, satellite imagery, video verification, audio analysis to do some investigations um, in Gaza, and we are doing those investigations. Um, it, it's not complete, and and we're and that's why sometimes we feel a little bit hampered because we can't always comment on um, particular attacks. We can comment on the overall trends, uh, and the overall trends are very worrying. 
we're focusing um, in particular on the United States because it's such a strong backer um, of the Israeli government and also on Turkey and Qatar and Egypt and others who we, we see as having leverage over Hamas in terms of releasing hostages. Hamas, is hold, Hamas and Islamic Jihad are holding more at least 240 hostages from Israel. Um, civilian hostages need to be released immediately and unconditionally. And we're doing what we can to also advocate for that. All right, thank you. We're gonna we're gonna let you go, and thank you so much for giving me giving us so much of your time today, Amjad. I'm gonna ask you to stay, and I've got a, a couple more questions that I want to round up with, including from the chat. Um, so, and this is okay. So, something that's been referenced previously by me and by you, and I think by Sari, is that the current situation, the current crisis, is is focused on Gaza, but it's not limited to Gaza. And I'm I'm wondering if you can talk to us a little bit about the situation inside the West Bank, um, and and what you what you see happening there. The nutshell is that uh, the Israeli state and the Israeli settler movement is taking full advantage of the war in Gaza to advance as much of its plans as possible. And what that looks like on the ground are these escalated attacks, uh, especially on rural Palestinian uh, communities and villages, mostly in Area C, but not limited to them only. Uh, also seeing some other Palestinian towns, even like Huwara, Tormus Aya, uh, like villages, that, uh, villages and towns that experienced uh, quite a few settler programs over the past couple of months, some of the worst ones that uh, especially kind of caught uh, international attention um, you know, earlier this year. Uh, and we're seeing that in full force and it's not getting the attention precisely because uh, naturally most people are are, are turning the cameras uh, to Gaza. But I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, so far in the past three weeks or so, about 13 Palestinian communities uh, in the West Bank have now basically been chased out of their homes uh, under the escalating violence because of the shootings and deaths. And it really is becoming a free-for-all for settlers backed by, by soldiers and accompanied by soldiers to really go at these communities. Uh, we were all, uh, this trend also happening the past couple of months with the escalation of settler programs, uh, and even just let alone the past couple of years where that's, that violence has been an uptick, but it's just been so expedited. Um, and even now we're still getting messages from a lot of Palestinian friends and colleagues in these communities, basically updating like the settlers and soldiers are coming into their towns, uh, coming into their villages, breaking into homes, grabbing people, uh, threatening them, like, if you don't get out within 24 hours, we're coming back to, uh, to, to destroy your home or to kill you. That's straight out. Uh, I think the, last night or the night before, um, there was like a home that was also like burnt uh, by settlers. And so this violence is really happening um, at, a, at a very, very alarming and these are these are very small communities, and most of them are kind of like agricultural shepherding communities, and they're inaccessible for like the Palestinian Authority. Like these, these are entirely controlled by the Israeli military and then the Israeli civil administration as part of quote unquote Area C. And the only defense that they have is either themselves or solidarity activists who are trying to come and chase off the settlers. But in the face of such violence, it's uh, it's impossible to see. And all this is happening, as I'm sure maybe uh, uh, Fadi and us uh, were talking about yesterday, uh, about this kind of total military lockdown across the West Bank, uh, people unable to even get out of their cities sometimes, that the army is still raiding certain areas, including Janine. Uh, people are even unable to, uh, I think, get back through the crossings, through Allenby, if I'm not mistaken, um, or, or at least it's more difficult for most people at least to do so. Um, and so this entire closure is really just kind of repeating a lot of the tactics that we used to see back in the Second Intifada, and just shows how much the occupation is still so much a part 
of, of the West Bank. So all this is being is happening while all this is going on in Gaza, um, and it's and and the result is that continuation of ethnic cleansing, um, and the end goal is basically the same. You know, these are not separate, uh, vaguely connected uh, incidents. They are part and parcel of the same agenda that we're witnessing. Yeah, and and listening to that, I'm I find myself thinking about the um, the flyer that was um, that people found on their windshields across the West Bank um, last week, in Arabic from settlers warning Palestinians to get their stuff together and flee to Jordan, or they're going to be expelled. Um, I also think it's interesting um, thinking about this this question of what what are the equities of Israel's neighbor, Israel's neighbors, Egypt and Jordan, when it looks like there is energy for expelling Palestinians, the, the, the kind of statements we've been hearing from the king, the queen, the foreign minister of Jordan, um, suggest a, a keen understanding that there are direct Jordanian equities involved in what's happening on the ground, partly because often the same people who are calling for the expulsion of Palestinians are also the same people who say that Jordan is Palestine. Um, so it, it strikes me these are not not unrelated. Um, can you also talk a little bit more? I talked about in the introduction, you mentioned it. Um, and you're a Palestinian citizen of Israel. Can you talk about what's happening there and how, I mean, so we know there's renewed and accelerated repression of civil rights inside Israel, especially freedom of speech. There's been a lot of arrests and it's not just arrests for you know perceived ties to Hamas, it's arrests for criticizing what's happening in Gaza or any kind of solidarity. And, and, and you've talked about and you've written about the kind of fear that is now pervasive amongst Palestinian citizens of Israel. Can you just delve into that a little bit? Really hard to capture the full scope of that fear. Um, we've, you know, over the years, especially when there are wars on Gaza, you know, Palestinian citizens do get a brunt of um, of the state and Jewish society turning against them, and we especially saw this uh, quite alarmingly uh, in May two thousand twenty one, uh, when you had like you know also this mass movement in Jerusalem that was met with police repression, uh, which was also compelled by a, a war on Gaza as well. And also, and seeing these, you know, quote unquote clashes between uh, cities like, you know, quote unquote mixed cities like uh, Haifa and Lid and Akka uh, and so on, um, between Jewish and Palestinian citizens. Uh, but the Jewish citizens, the Jewish mobs, were usually backed by the cops. Uh, so there was that itself also had a massive asymmetry, and this and this violence and this persecution that really engulfed the country, like inside Israel, uh, in May two thousand twenty one. That was already that's already been kind of almost front and center for most Palestinian citizens in the two years since. And what we're seeing now, you know, can't even compare to what we saw to, to beyond anything. Like you said, the I think the racist rhetoric that we're hearing from the politicians is is absolutely obscene. Like like I said, just genocidal remarks made uh, you know made made absolutely freely. The Israeli media is also platforming a lot of these voices, even just talking about what they want to do to Gaza. And so if you're a Palestinian citizen turning on your television, you're hearing this just like wall to wall coverage of that same message. It's absolutely alarming. Uh, but even in your day to day life, you're hearing Palestinian citizens in their workplaces when they go when they go to buy their groceries or go to the mall or when they're just going out on the streets. And I was hearing a horrific story, even of just like uh, uh, some Palestinian uh, like two Palestinian citizens were sitting on the beach. Uh, in Haifa, and they turn around and they see that there's a Jewish civilian kind of pointing a gun at them, saying, "This is how we get rid of them." 
Like, and this is backed by Jewish Israelis being encouraged to just bear firearms everywhere and anywhere. And you're hearing uh, this, um, this kind of this amplified racism and hatred, you know, in in every scope of their life. Uh, so Palestinian citizens are are really terrified of what uh, the state and society is doing to them and can still do to them when the when the threat is suddenly genuinely pervasive. It's different for Jewish Israelis who are, are assuming that there are threats everywhere. For Palestinian citizens, every Jewish Israeli person could be armed and could see them as an enemy. If you speak Arabic on the bus or a train, like that could, uh, someone could easily just like threaten you in some way or harm you in some way. And someone will say, oh, they were a terrorist and they're about to stab us. So, and again, these are things that have been a constant reality for many Palestinian citizens. Um, but just the pervasiveness of it and the way that's again been so amplified and expedited in these past few weeks is really shaking Palestinian citizens to uh, to the core. Uh, so much so that they're even afraid to really defy even the police and government regulations to go out to protest, which they usually do. Uh, but the threats that they're facing against and the people are being arrested, Palestinian citizens and even left-wing Jews are being arrested for speaking out on social media or going to the streets or activists you know, in, in any form, or even just regular protesters. Um, it's really all-encompassing, and uh, I mean, I think I mentioned it earlier, but there's a sense of this totalitarian shift that has just really turned against uh, Palestinian citizens, and so they're really still living with that fear. Thank you for that. Um, I want to ask you one related last question, and and you spoke about the last Gaza war and and the impact there. One of the things that we saw with that last Gaza war, though, was you know, if Israeli policy over the past 55 years has in some large part been about fragmenting the Palestinian population between Gaza, the West Bank, and inside Israel, and creating populations that have a different way, a different set of equities, a different, everything, they're living under different governance, and they actually are physically separated. What we saw with that last Gaza war is um, a defragmentation um, trend, right? People coming, people really recognizing um, shared equities. Can you talk about what how what's happening now relates to that trend um, in a, even a much more horrific way? But um, but can you also talk about how that defragmentation um, relates to or plays into what we're seeing in the international grassroots movement? Um, the solidarity, you know, it's, it's, I, you hear ceasefire now, but the sense of solidarity is with Palestinians. It's not just Palestinians in Gaza. So can you talk about that? And I don't know if that gives you hope or where you think that goes, but I'd just like you to dig into that for a bit. And this is the final question. So if there's anything else you want to throw in, this is the place to throw it in. Yeah, I wish, um, I mean, I wish I could say something a bit more hopeful on this. Um, and, and it's quite, it feels quite different to May 2021, whereby even though there was a lot of horrors and violence even back then, uh, that aspect of that, you know, what people describe as the unity intifada, the dignity intifada, it was still powerful enough to almost like not balance it out, but at least to kind of put that into perspective. And you're right, like Palestinians felt even energized by that, you know, as much as they could, uh, despite the material reality still pushing against them. This time, you know, that sense of unity is still there. I mean, part of the Palestinians do feel connected and only felt more connected with the new generations. But I think there's something to the total violence and the total, um, the fact that everyone is really under threat in a way that, you know, even May 2021, where you sense that, but it's just, it's become so, um, so much more pervasive and so much more brutal. And especially for Gaza, where literally it wasn't just a matter of uh, kind of bombardments, but it, it's now a full-on process where people are describing it as another stage of the Nakba of really 
expelling like the worst nightmares of Palestine is really being fulfilled as opposed to just like um um kind of another round of this you know the quote-unquote violent equilibrium of the and the fact that in the west bank now you have entire communities being fled like it is it's it's real it really is uh kind of witnessing in live time uh those deepest darkest concerns um and so there's something to that which i think is also very it's hampering palestinian ability to really organize and mobilize back home. I mean, in Gaza, it's impossible. The, the priority is survival. Uh, in the West Bank, you know, which is fragmented even within the, that territory, you know, you got a military lockdown and settler violence in area in area C. And so the ability to even um, channel that, I think, is extremely, extremely difficult. And this is in addition to the, the Palestinian Authority trying to keep a lid on, on everything. And for Palestinian citizens, like I was just saying, like the legal, political, and public infrastructure is just completely turning against them. So the the ability to right, at least for now the ability to do something like the like what we saw about two years ago i think has been really limited uh and it just speaks to the violence of the state and the way that it has learned in a terrifying way how to try to keep palestinians in their cages wherever they are and i mean and internationally i mean like i said i think it's it's been extraordinary to see a lot of demonstrators speaking out and like i said just being able to say the word genocide as to what's happening to especially in gaza and people really grasping the full scope of what's happening and witnessing how much israel has really gone down this descent of i'm going to say like open ended fascism um and totalitarianism uh but those are still those are voices in the public, but they still haven't broken into the into the political realm. And in the end, sadly, a lot of this is still power politics, and Palestinians are still being um, kind of the collateral damage to these geopolitical games and to Israeli domestic concerns. Um, and and as time and and time is currency at this point. And with each passing hour, I mean, even sorry, I was saying if, every, if each day something like 130 Palestinian kids are being killed, those are lives, families. Uh, you know, f- futures are being completely decimated. And so that sense that time is, is slipping by and our people are slipping by as well. Um, it's very paralyzing, very, very paralyzing. Um, so at, at this point, I mean, I'm personally kind of finding it hard to see where we can find this this energy that can break through, you know, huge structures that are really just trying to get rid of us. And it's astonishing that 2 million civilians in a, blo- in a blockaded strip are up against a colonial regime backed by a global superpower, acquiesced by all these other major economic and military powerhouses against this tiny little strip of population, let alone the other millions of Palestinians who are experiencing uh, similar effects of it. Um, with that said, Palestinians are still coming out. Palestinians are still speaking up. They're going to the media. They're speaking on forums like this. They're helping to organize these demonstrations. Um, and so it's not that we're passive in, in this, but it's uh, but it's indicative of the extent that we need international support to really break through that wall that's being set by government and to make uh, kind of public and rhetorical support into real material support to stop the guns, stop the bombs, immediately get aid, and to recognize our rights, uh, that this can't go on, that this apartheid regime, which has enjoyed more impunity than ever has, needs to be chipped away, needs to be broken down, it needs to be replaced with something different. And Palestinians have the material, intellectual um, ideas and infrastructure to be able to develop that. But we need to be given that space to express them, to uh, for the world to see how legitimate they are, 
uh, not because we need their validation for the sake of it, because we need that because we need it for them to realize what they need to do and how to incur a price on the apartheid regime in order to weaken it and allow those voices and other visions to uh, to take hold. I think that is a perfect way to wrap up this conversation. It's not super optimistic, but it is it is constructive and and I think gives people energy for what they need to be doing. Um, we've talked a lot about ceasefire over the past two events. Um, I think it is worth recognizing that when someone says ceasefire and the answer is ceasefire only helps Hamas, the person who's saying ceasefire only helps Hamas is effectively erasing the value of all of the lives, including those children that Amjad and Sari mentioned um, every day. They're literally saying that those lives don't count in the calculus of who's helped and who's hurt. And I think it is, uh, I think, worth all of us interrogating our own values to, to understand that and understand the the certainly the moral implications of that kind of kind of position. So with that, we're gonna end it here. Um, Amjad, thank you so much. We thank Sari who's had to leave. Um, so, uh, so wonderful having you with us today and we hope to have you back again. Thank you to everyone who joined us or who's listening to this webinar um, on, on audio after the fact. Please check back at the FMEP website, www.fmap.org. Um, we will post this audio and video with um, a whole compendium of resources, indeed a, a veritable curriculum relating to this conversation, and also check back for future programming. And with that, we will end this event. Thank you so, so much. Thank you, Laura.